am Nita Farahani, I'm joined here with Preet Bharara. We're going to introduce ourselves to you and this panel on will AI wreck or revolutionize criminal justice. Um, I'm Nita Farahani. I'm a futurist, a legal ethicist, and a law professor at Duke University, um, and also the author of The Battle for Your Brain, Defending the Right to Think Freely in the Age of Neurotechnology. You're going to see that we both have each other's books here because we're going to be talking about where they collide. So, Preet. Uh, thank you. It's great to be here in Austin. Uh, all I have to say is Austin, and you, and you clap. Um, that's great. Austin. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is neuroscience right here. Um, I'm Preet Bharara. Uh, I uh, used to be the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York uh, uh, for about seven and a half years, oversaw a lot of criminal prosecutions and civil cases. I now, uh, among other things, um, have a number of podcasts that I do for Vox Media, uh, and I'm a practicing lawyer at Wilmer Hale, and I teach, uh, I teach a legal class at NYU Law School. I'm the author of a book that uh, Nita is holding, Doing Justice, a former prosecutor's thoughts on criminal justice, um, which is not the precise subtitle, Austin. <laughs> this is really good. Okay. <laughs> We're going to have to attach some electrodes We're to all of your brain. going to throw those in every now and then. To right? all of your so, brain. Like when it's going not well, right. just, you know, the we'll buzzword. Just, we'll just toss in yeah, Austin. Now you're all hypnotized. Yeah. Um, so uh, I thought we'd begin. We have a lot of ground to cover. This is, this is cutting edge, interesting stuff. And um, Nita and I have been talking for some time. She's been on the podcast. Her book is terrific. You should, you should get it uh, after this if you haven't gotten it already. And some of the issues that arise relate deeply to the kinds of things that, that any society should care about and needs to think about. And that's the balance between what's right and what's not right. Uh, and so before we get into the question of whether or not AI and other technology will wreck uh, or revolutionize the criminal justice, I think it's useful because there's lots of unbelievably fascinating and, and probably in some cases scary stuff that Nita describes in her book. What are the kinds of things we're talking about before we decide whether it's a thumbs up or a thumbs down? What are the kinds of things that technology now allows us to do that might relate to criminal justice? So there's a lot of ground there to cover, and I am going to lay out just a few ways in which artificial intelligence and neurotechnology are already being used in the criminal justice system. We're going to use this just as level setting. If you have questions, you can feel free to ask them uh, to make sure that we're all on the same page. But you know, AI has already been introduced into a lot of different aspects of the criminal justice system. So, for example, um, there are tools being used to be assistive to judges to help them make decisions about whether or not to um, give somebody bail or not. Um, there are AI tools which are being used based on factors of what a criminal has done or hasn't done, plugged into a system, reducing it to kind of data points to make recommendations about the likelihood of future, offense, uh, future offending, and then using that to inform sentencing decisions, or using that to inform whether or not a person will receive parole. Um, Already in both the United States and in other countries, there's even AI judging that has occurred, at least for simple, structured kinds of cases. So for example, if it's just purely a financial dispute between the parties, where it's easier to kind of program what the rules and the parameters are, in some cases, AI is judging those cases rather than a regular human judge. In the most, most cases, what's happening is AI is being used as an assistive tool. But there are risks because uh, in addition to the fact that you know, the data 
or whatever AI puts out is only as good as what goes into it. And a lot of the prior statistics about the likelihood of reoffending is based on over-policing that has already occurred within minority populations or higher sentences or reoffending that's already occurred within populations based on existing cultural, structural, and discriminatory norms, the output that it is giving and making recommendations about how likely a person is to reoffend is just as likely to have many of those different biases baked into them. Those are some of the basics. The more cutting edge applications that I talk about in the battle for your brain um, are some of the ways in which uh, even using AI to train on data that you wouldn't imagine, which is brain data, is being used as a basis for then doing brain-based interrogations. So more than a decade ago, uh, there was a researcher by the name of Larry Farwell who was really interested in figuring out whether or not brain-based interrogation could be used as a better lie detector, essentially. And there have been very cumbersome technologies used in this capacity. So functional magnetic resonance imaging. If you've ever been in an MRI machine, these are enormous machines. A person can be put into an fMRI machine, and there was a theory that if you tell a lie, that it's more cognitively burdensome than if you tell the truth. Well, it turns out if you're a very good liar or a psychopath, that may not be true. <laughs> but in addition, the imaging that's done in a case like that, it's very difficult to be able to figure out what a real world lie with real stakes looks like in the brain versus what a laboratory-based setting of lying looks like. So you give somebody you know, a ring and you say, listen, I want you to either choose to steal the ring or steal the coin. And I don't want you to tell me which one you've stolen, and then I want you to get into the machine and I want you to lie about which one you've stolen, um, and I'm gonna show you images to try to figure out if you're telling the truth or lying. There are no stakes with a fake stealing of a ring or a coin or something in a laboratory environment versus in the real world setting. More recently, there's been this application of EEG interrogation, electroencephalography, um, which tries to look at uh, automatic responses in your brain. So your brain, whenever you recognize something, um, before you're consciously aware of recognizing it, it has a little signal that you can pick up called a P300 evoked response potential. Um, and the idea, more art than science, which we're gonna get into, is to show a person a series of images, crime scene images that only a person who was at the crime scene or um, was you know, somebody who participated in it or was the murderer themselves would recognize. So images that couldn't have been released to the public, for example. And you show them that and then you look to see whether or not there's a signal of recognition in their brain. And believe it or not, that technology has not only been used in the US criminal justice system voluntarily by some criminal defendants who've submitted to it, but it's also a technique that's been used worldwide and that's been sold by a US-based company where there are reports in Dubai and in India and in China and in other countries doing this brain-based interrogation to try to get at the idea of truth. It gives you the, like, just scratches the surface of some of the technology, but I'm gonna use that. that can, can I ask you one question? And I didn't mention this to you before, so I apologize for the surprise question. But as you were speaking, as we've spoken about this, we've generally talked about ways in which that last technology described might be able to be used to prove that a particular person is lying or not lying, a person who is a target of an investigation or a subject. 
of an investigation, it occurs to me that one, one issue we have in law enforcement is trusting a witness, right. being able to uh, pick someone out of a lineup, as you see in the movies. More often, it's a photo array or what we call a six-pack, six pictures of similarly looking f people to try to uh, you know, make an, a conclusion about the accuracy of the identification, and the person circles the one picture if they recognize that person who's the one who they claim mugged them or was driving the getaway car, whatever the case may be. Um, is this recognition technology useful there, and has it been used there to see if something fires in the brain that's better than the stated recall of the witness? Well, so first I should say your memory is not a video camera, right? If you're looking out in the world um, and you perceive you know, everybody in this room right now and then you store it and record it, it's also constructed, right? What you, what you think you have seen, what you visualize from a distance. And you have an interesting passage in your book that we're going to get into yeah. about a case in which there was an eyewitness who couldn't possibly have seen the crime scene and less to, led to a false conviction, right? Many years later, finally, the person was exonerated. But our memory is not perfect. It's not like it's stored like a video camera. So the idea that you can probe it to perfectly reconstruct memory is based on this false idea, right? And a lot of times, science and its use of it in the criminal justice system is, is based on the belief that there is that, that there is like perfect recording in the brain, perfect visualization of everything around you. Now, some things that you see and perceive, right, that you actually notice and perceive, you can be probed. There's, there's some really interesting studies done um, by a lot of researchers, but one group at Stanford I'll mention, where they wanted to see um, if, if they put a camera, one of these like go cams that, are, uh, that a person would wear all day long, and it would take images of everything that they were seeing. And then they would put them into an fMRI machine and then try to do that kind of recognition memory, see if the images that they had seen are ones that they could pick up by fMRI brain-based detection for recognition. And it was better than chance, right? It was, it was more accurate than you might expect to be able to see recognition right. in but the it was brain. But it was not foolproof. But it wasn't foolproof. Memory is not foolproof. Trying to get it from your brain through other more objective <laughs> techniques is not foolproof. But, but that brings us to a lot yeah. of what you're doing in your book, right? Which is, at, at least in the first part, right? So you've, you've broken down your book into these interesting sections. And I want to start with, what do you think we're doing in the criminal justice system? <laughs> Right? I mean, what, like, what is it that we're trying to achieve? <laughs> uh, justice, whatever, whatever that means. Um, as I say, but no, you have to say what justice. No, I, mean, I, I like say the in the introduction. Title is doing I justice. say, as I say, justice means, right? as I say in the introduction to the book, for thousands of years, people have been trying to figure out what a proper conception and notion of justice is. Uh, the reason I title the book "Doing Justice" is because justice is a process; it's not a result. If you think you know on the first day of an investigation what the result should be, who the person sh who should be held accountable is, and what the punishment should be, then, then that's not doing justice at all, even though that's how sometimes in popular society we talk about it. And so in the broadest sense, and this doesn't give, that, give it that much um, definitional heft, I think people will view something as being just, the result as being just, if the process was fair, whatever we mean by that, we'll talk about that in a minute, and if the people who are involved, and I say people, not machines just yet, and if the people who are involved in that fair process are themselves fair-minded, right? You need, you need both of those things. There, there are lots of places in the world that have lovely constitutions, if you read them, uh, and there are lots of companies in the world that have great compliance programs and have great training programs, uh, but a lot of injustice is being done in those places. So you both need rules and regulations and policies and norms, but you also need people of good faith 
uh, and, of, and of good heart to be making sure that they're doing things the right way. So you need, you need, you need process and you need um, good functioning rules. Lots of people say, and I think this is part of what you're getting at, and part of the question we have to answer with respect to does technology help, when people say that, that criminal justice is supposed to be about the truth and justice is about the truth, that's part of what justice is about, but, it's not, but not really. Um, there are lots of things that we don't tell the jury in a trial, the things we keep from them. The truth is this person who's on, on trial for murder uh, may have had gun trafficking convictions before. We don't tell the jury about those because there's another principle we care about, which is fairness. And fairness in a process does not necessarily mean that all the truth must come out. For example, if I have gone out and killed somebody um, in, in our system, and the truth is that I killed that person, and I killed that person with malice, and that in different circumstances I should be and would be convicted of homicide, um, you might say, well, that's a no-brainer. However, if you obtain that conviction by a confession that I made that I, that I killed this person, and that was a coerced confession, and that's the, the quantum of evidence that puts you over the top for conviction, I, the truth is I, I did the murder. But the fair thing is in this system, and you can disagree with it, is that I get out and I don't go to prison. And you can't prosecute me because you don't have enough evidence. So you know, one of the questions I'll throw back at you is when we think about what we're trying to do in the criminal justice system, does, and maybe it's, the answer is both, does this technology that you've described in part, does it get at the truth aspect of criminal justice or does it get at the fairness aspect or both? So, you know, one of the things that I thought about a lot when I was reading your book and as I think about the technologies is this idea of, of truth, right, and, and what we're trying to achieve. If we're really trying to figure out, like, the honest truth. I went to ChatGPT. Have you guys played with ChatGPT? Yeah. So I went to ChatGPT, and I um, asked ChatGPT, how could AI uh, overcome confirmation and other biases that you write about and talk about in your book? One of the problems with truth and with the criminal justice system is oftentimes once somebody has been identified as a suspect, um, other people who might have actually committed the crime aren't investigated and every additional piece of evidence is used to confirm what is already a kind of false determination that somebody has made that that is the person that they should continue to kind of chase down, that that's the right suspect. Um, and the result can be that you're blinded to a lot of the other evidence that's in front of you, that you're blinded to a lot of the other information. So or, I asked or lack you, of evidence. Or lack of evidence. Right. So I asked ChatGPT, and ChatGPT had um, a, a delightful, but I think mythical uh, kind of answer to this, um, which was, you know, it said basically that you could just take all of the data, right, and just objectively feed it into AI, and AI would not be led astray by the traditional kind of brain heuristics and shortcuts and confirmation biases. It would just take a really hard, objective look at the data and would then spit out for you, here are the likely suspects and here's the most likely person and the probabilities that that's the correct suspect. Now, of course, data is only as good, right? The, the model is only going to give you what you put into it. So if the only data that you've collected to begin with suggests a particular suspect, it's not going to give you a better answer. But imagine you had the universe of every lead, you know, every call in, every shred of evidence and you could feed it into AI, would that lead to better outcomes? And so I'm going to turn that back to you, right? That's ChatGPT's answer is, is uh, there's, it's objective and it isn't biased and it doesn't suffer the same confirmation biases and other prejudicial biases that 
humans make in approaching the problems. And so tell me what you think. Is that, yeah, is that look, a fair like, pushback by ChatGPT? I'm, I'm not an expert in the technology. You are. But I think it's a mixed bag, and we need to think about the pros and cons, right? So on the one hand, when we think about justice, another you know, uh, aspect of our conception of justice is it should be individualized, right? Uh, when you're taking into account the fullness of the person, the fullness of the person's conduct at sentencing when a judge does that. Um, you're thinking very specifically about that person, that person's upbringing, that person's life, the circumstances, the motivations, the collateral consequences, and all sorts of other things. And that's fine and good, but to the extent you say to a judge, well, you're supposed to think about you know, this one person and the particulars of this one person, specific, specifics with respect to this one person, that opens up um, in your <clears throat> discretion, because that's a system in which you've given the judge a lot of discretion, that opens you up to bias. That's why we established the sentencing guidelines some years ago that have been controversial, to put into place some norms, so that on the other side of the coin, <clears throat> uh, you, know, you don't just want individualized justice, but within parameters. So that if I'm an Indian American who gets arrested in New York City for something, and a similarly situated person, or if I'm on vacation, I get arrested somewhere else in the United States for the exact same crime, some conception of justice says, well, I should face a similar sentence. Even though a judge in New York and a judge in some other place, in Texas, for example, might have a very different view about when, what individualized justice means in this situation. Sometimes, and part of the reason the sentencing guidelines were adopted, was in, in street crime cases, there was a variation in how much people got sentenced to depending on various factors like their race and ethnicity. Uh, and by comparison, by contrast, in white collar cases, you had people <clears throat> who judges were not sentencing particularly harshly because often judges, depending on the circumstances, identified with the person and had more empathy for the person. Now, one thing you miss when you start looking at um, AI to figure out sentencing, which I think is somewhat problematic, that is concerned with things like uh, you know, recidivism and everything else and, and, and making predictive conclusions about that, you may eliminate some bias, but you're also not paying attention to that particular person. So I, I don't know where the balance comes out. Yeah. I think, well, it, I I mean, think so it's an inherent problem in the system itself when you're trying to balance both of those things. So that's so a non-answer for On the one hand, you. like I'd say individualized justice sounds great, right? I mean, we all hope for compassion and mercy, but individualized justice also invites individualized bias, right? Yeah. And we have significant differential outcomes between uh, people committing exactly the same crimes with maybe the same mitigating factors that go into it in different jurisdictions by different judges based on race or uh, based on how good they, uh, how good their lawyer is, how, whether or not they can afford to um, you know, pay for a more vigorous defense or if they can't afford to pay for a more vigorous defense. So I can understand the allure of the idea that you would have some kind of level setting, right? You'd have, yep. a, you'd have something like AI that would look at all the factors and maybe even just give you data to say something like, look, here are, like we've, we've entered all of the details about every other case across the country. Here are the 50 cases that look the most similar to the case that you know, you're deciding before you today. And here are what the outcomes and the sentences are in those cases. And I wonder if even just like, that processing of data <clears throat> well, would it's, lead it's funny to you a say that, because that's actually the job of the lawyers in the case. Well, like, when, except they when, don't when have you, access to all that, and well, we're not systematizing that information. I don't know. Um, you know, maybe it's the case that Westlaw doesn't have every possible case, and a, a artificial intelligence 
it has can, can use, find more but data. It doesn't have a lot of factors. Like it doesn't. You don't have like this is the race of the defendant. This is the um, you know information about their upbringing. This is the background. This right, is the but, nature but how of the evidence you, they introduced into the but case. But how are you how are you weighing those things in your in your program? Well, I mean that's I guess that's supposed to be the beauty of AI right. is that we don't have to figure out how it's weighed. It, it figures out. It what figures we're, out what should be. It figures out how much age. So for example. Um, We'll take it out of the, the area of race. Um, is it appropriate to sentence a 70-year-old man, a uh, healthy 70-year-old man, to something different for the same crime as an unhealthy 70-year-old man or someone who is, is likely to die in prison? Is it fair to sentence a 70-year-old man differently from a 70-year-old woman because of the actuarial tables? Is it fair to sentence a 40-year-old man but couldn't we to set something an different? Idealized standard, right? Couldn't we say like? But that that but that's that's a value judgment that that but, easily but could, could introduce bias by, right. to. So if you were the one making the decision across every single case in the country, I think we'd have very even and even-handed justice. But if you have different okay, I'll judges, take I'll take on that duty. Yeah, there you go. I'm, I'm, but if you have different I'm cases in. in different jurisdictions, the question is whether or not it has any level setting. But let me, you have, you have two really examples, you have so many interesting examples of this book. This is like such a fantastic book. And, and I say that not to like push it on you, but I, I've gone back to it multiple different times. It's so thought provoking. Um, and there's two interesting cases that I want to explore the kind of intersection of AI, neurotech, and criminal justice. How, how many of you are familiar with the Menendez brother cases? A number of you. Everyone. Yeah, a lot of people. I mean, I sort of grew up with this. I saw maybe a third of people didn't raise their hands, but you have an intimate connection to the Menendez brothers case. I didn't do it. <laughs> it wasn't me. But Don't I wonder if you could share. Keep that AI away from my brain. I wonder if you could share it through the lens of um, how much can we really know about another human being and what's in their mind and what they're capable of. If you could tell a story that you Yeah, tell I'll tell it very quickly because then I think you have very thoughtful things to say about how I'm, I'm wrong about some of that or <laughs> increasingly wrong about some of that given technology because I'm, I'm doing this even though I'm a Luddite. Um, it's the first story, it's the first chapter of the book after the introduction. And, and by the way, that chapter got written when I was um, pitching the book to various publishers and someone asked me the question, uh, we like your proposal, but it just talks about cases you did after you became U.S. attorney mostly. Is there something from your... Um, younger days before you became a lawyer that affected how you think about the law or affected how you think about your job. And on the spot, I remembered the fact that my, um, my best friend from high school, uh, her name is Jessica, for years had been telling me about her family's best friends. Now, we've ruined it because you know the punchline, but in the book you don't know that it's the Menendez family. But she had a crush on the older brother. Uh, I think it was Lyle and the younger brother's Eric, or I might have that reversed. Um, and her, Jessica's just family... Austin. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right, ready? Austin. Yeah. <laughs> I have won the battle for your brain. Um, and her, her parents, Jessica's parents and, and the Menendez uh, couple, lived together uh, in New York City when they were young and ambitious and didn't have any money. And I've been hearing about this family where the father, Jose Menendez, uh, and, and Kitty Menendez moved out to Beverly Hills and they became very successful. Um, and I've been hearing about them a long time. They're these amazing, handsome, uh, brilliant kids and a beautiful, wonderful family. And I'm a junior in college working in the sum over the summer at my uncle's uh, insurance company. Um, and I get a call, and it's Jessica crying on the phone. And she says, uh, the Menendez parents were just slaughtered. I mean, they were I mean, for those who remember the story, with shotgun blasts to the head, unrecognizably. 
um, they, were, they were massacred. And so we talked about who, might, who, who it might have been. He had been in business. There was some suggestion that maybe the mob was involved. And then the way, as I described the story in the book, every few months I got another call from Jessica about the Menendez case. And obviously it riveted the country because it was this crazy killing in Beverly Hills. And a few months later, um, I got another call, and it was that the boys had been arrested. And I remember we talked all night that night, and she said, it couldn't have been them. And are you sure? She said, it couldn't have been them. I knew them. She, went, she told me about the funeral that she went to and how beautifully one of the sons spoke at the funeral of, her, of, his, of his parents. Then fast forward some months, uh, and you may remember that they entered a defense of, um, I think it was a self-defense, and they claimed they'd been abused by their parents, and that's why they had them killed. So now we knew that they had done it, and the question was whether or not they should be held accountable for it. And I was a 19-year-old kid when I first got the, the call. I thought I was going to go to law school, and I, I ended up going to law school. But the, the essential truth of the thing that I said, you're going to challenge in a moment. Um, and I say it for the purpose of making sure that you keep an open mind, not just with respect to people you think are guilty. right? That's how you think about it, keeping an open mind. It's not the first suspect you think of. It may not have been the husband. It may not have been uh, the bank teller. It may not have been the CEO. But the opposite is also important. Keep an open mind as to who may have done it, who you think is incapable of having done it, uh, and, and where you think you have evidence to the contrary. And the phrase that you point out is, given that experience, how can you really know what anybody is capable of? Yeah. Now, technology challenges that premise. It does. I mean, it does in a couple of ways. I think there, it's still a far cry from really being able to know what another person is capable of. But already people have suggested applications of neurotechnology and AI, both for predictive purposes, right? AI has been used as a predictive tool to try to say this person is likely to reoffend and supposedly is more objective in being able to make those predictions based on a lot of other data that it's trained on. More controversial has been, um, I have a colleague who has been studying psychopathy for a very long time. Um, and in fact, I, I tease him because he has a mobile trailer uh, that he um, takes actually to prisons in New Mexico. And he administers the psychopathy uh, test, like the, the you know, check sheet test. And if people score high enough, then he's actually scanned their brains, many, many criminal defendants now. Um, and has been able to identify what he claims are differences in the brains of individuals who um, suffer from psychopathy than individuals who don't. And then, more controversially than that, argues that you can start to see some of those brain differences as early as five years old. Um, and so the question is, if you could see that, right, and just to be clear, just because you have brain differences in psychopathy doesn't mean that you're going to be a homicidal killer, Right? You could just be like a very good rugby player or something like that. I mean, right, there's any, any untold ways, but it is predictive of some kinds of behavior. And what do we do with that information? What do we do with classifications of individuals or predictions based on technology? Or, for example, you could administer um, you know, this kind of recognition memory that I gave to you. You could show people lots of different images and use brain state-based responses. They're emotional responses. People have done this to try to figure out political affiliations, for example. Show them a series of images of Democrats and Republicans and see whether or not they're registering disgust or joy when they're looking at images and start to ferret out what their biases are. And the question is, is this kind of profiling, right? Psychogenic profiling is happening all day, every day. If you're on your phone, which most of you were before this began, 
right? You're on different media sites that are trying to actually do psychogenic profiling of you. If that suggested that you're dangerous, should we use that in the criminal justice system? And I, I'm going to turn that to the other case that you know I want to talk about. Yeah. Um, which I hope they've know, eaten. Well, how many have you seen Minority Report? Okay, so this case is like Minority Report. It's a very well-rounded group. Steroids. It is. This is like you guys have you have all of the priors. It's fantastic. You read the syllabus. So I mean, there's the there's the really disturbing case. I don't even remember the name's guy. The guy's so name. So Gilberto Valley. So it comes yeah. it comes to my desk, and if you're from New York, you may remember it because it was on the front page of the New York Post for like four days in a row. Um, there's a woman who goes to the FBI uh, because she at first suspects her husband of having an affair because he's up late at night and doesn't come to bed and he seems to be acting in a suspicious way. As I describe in the book, she puts um, you know, software uh, on her husband's computer so she could snoop on what he was doing at night. So he goes, to, um, he goes to work, she goes downstairs and checks on what he'd been looking at and what she saw was much worse than infidelity. What could be worse than that? She saw that he was exchanging text messages with um, other people and going on dark websites, uh, discussing, planning in detail the kidnapping, rape, murdering, and consumption of identified and identifiable women. Uh, and when the New York Post got a hold of this later, when we, when we made the arrest, they uh, denoted him the cannibal cop because he was an active duty officer in the NYPD. And the question, so she flees the home, takes her daughter, never went back, calls her, her father, who was a, a cop in Las Vegas, who said, go straight to the airport, I'll have a ticket waiting for you. She flees the home because of what she's seen. Uh, and I teach this. Because this, they've even described her, right? In some of the yeah, it's, it's So the question, will, the question will become, was it just thought? Well, no, let's keep going. Okay, with the facts. Keep going. So, <laughs> so, she, so she flees. Her, um, her father calls someone that he knows at the FBI. The FBI gets involved, comes to the U.S. Attorney's Office. We have a good team of people working on it. And they begin to look at the evidence relating to the guy. And what you normally do in cases like this, whether it's child exploitation or something else, you want to figure out, is it just thinking? Or has he done some action in furtherance of what we were thinking was a, uh, a kidnapping, conspiracy, kidnapping and homicide conspiracy? And what you normally do is you introduce an undercover agent, you get uh, confidential informants, and you play it out over time, and you make sure he takes more steps. The problem for us was, um, at the early stage of the investigation, uh, Valley, the, the, the cop, decided to take a vacation. And we knew he was aware that his wife had seen this th th these things. He was distraught. He's an active duty officer. Uh, he has a firearm. And based on the chats and the other information and his w web surfing, we know he's identified particular people as targets, including his wife, including other people known to him, a teacher and, and some other folks. Uh, and we have a, a, an argument with the FBI, the U.S. Attorney's Office and the FBI, who said we can keep eyes on him during the vacation. And we said, maybe you can't keep eyes on him. And the title, the title of the chapter is called God Forbid, because it's this voice in your head. We are trying to make a decision in law enforcement along these lines. God forbid you lose your eyes on him, and he does something to one of these people, it'll be hell to pay. Everyone was in agreement that we did not have the ideal amount of evidence. We did not have the ideal amount of um, proof that he was taking specific action. We had some. He had done searches on the internet for chloroform. He had gone to the, to the home of, of one of the people uh, who was identified as somebody he wanted to rape and eat. Was that enough? Who knows? Until the, the, the end of the story, we, um, we arrested him. We took him to trial with, the more limited evidence than, the, with more limited evidence than we wanted, convicted at trial, 
sentenced to a number of years, what normally happens at the end of a case like this is the defense always makes a motion for a new trial. Uh, that's usually decided right away. In this case, the judge sat on that or deliberated over it for 18 months. And a very good judge, former um, prosecutor in my old office. Was he in prison the whole time? He's in prison the whole time, okay. so I have a view about that. 18 months, surprise, the judge overturns the verdict because the judge determined that, that no reasonable jury could have found the way it did. Meanwhile, it took him 18 months to, to figure that out. <laughs> so on the reasonableness standard, I'm not sure how you actually square that away, and I have theories about that. But the judge said, in his opinion, and then we'll talk about how this relates to the, to the AI and, and neurotechnology, there were some parts of the communications that seemed real, right? The identification of real people, the language that was used, the vivid language that was used. Uh, but there were other things that never came to pass. A group of people would be in a chat, and they would say, well, let's, let's meet on such and such time, on such and such day, and then we're going to go do the deal. And they wouldn't meet on that day. And since we didn't have enough time to carry forward the investigation, like we did with other people later connected to the same person who got convicted, who got sentenced to prison by the same judge who didn't overturn their convictions, we didn't have that opportunity with Gilberto Valley. That's the, that's the story, and that's the difficult case. Yeah. So... That case has haunted me for so many reasons. So he was kind and didn't give you all of the gory details right now, but many of the gory details yeah. are in the book. <laughs> and so I'll just trigger warning as you get to that area of the book. It is incredibly disturbing. But I find myself really torn about that case. I teach on the first day of criminal law. So I teach first-year students criminal law at Duke Law School. And on the first day of class, I usually do the Minority Report kind of example. Most of them at this point haven't seen Minority Report. They've at least still heard of Tom Cruise, so it doesn't date me by, you know, like many decades, <laughs> and that's at least good. But, you know, I say, listen, like, you need to go home and watch Minority Report because I'm going to make lots of references to it for the rest of the semester. Um, but, you know, that's a dystopian science fiction story about pre-crime, right, before somebody commits a crime. Um, and we hold open the possibility that up until the last moment before a person commits a crime, that they could change their mind. We nevertheless have attempt liability and hold people guilty of attempting crimes if they've taken substantial steps. And this real problem, I mean, this woman reading all of these messages in gruesome detail about how they want to kill her and do all sorts of horrific things to her, and she has an 18-month-old daughter, of course you want to protect society against that. So where do you draw the line between thoughts and actual actions? And part of what really troubles me about that, and I focus a lot of my book, The Battle for Your Brain, on this, is where we have the space for freedom of thought, right? As, as government uses of technology start to proliferate. So the, the world in which I imagine that I, that I think is, is coming pretty soon is there's wearable brain-computer interface technology that is becoming much more widestream. Um, so these are, it, like how many of you have on an Apple Watch or a smart watch of some form? Okay, most of those probably have sensors in it. You might have on like a Fitbit or uh, a ring that's tracking your temperature or something. And the idea is that the one area that has not yet been accessed in the same way is, is brain activity. And so companies have already launched, but now the kind of big thing that's transitioning is there have been these headsets that you can wear um, that pick up brain activity, but they're cumbersome, they're noisy, they don't pick up a lot of good signal from the brain. Increasingly, companies are embedding those same electrodes in earbuds and in headphones where in the soft cups that go around the ears, 
there are brain sensors or putting it into an Apple Watch or here it's going to be the Meta Watch that launches in 2025 where it picks up brain activity as it goes from your brain down your arm to your wrist and picks up your intention to do things like move or type. And just like governments have already compelled data from Fitbits and Apple Watches in criminal cases, I worry that these same devices will be used in criminal cases to try to figure out what people are feeling or what their brain activity was in a particular moment. And none of these can pick up thoughts yet. They pick up inferences from brainwave activity and as AI gets better, can pick up brain states like different emotional reactions that a person might be having. But as it gets better and as the sensors get better and as the AI pattern classification gets better, it'll have better approximations of things that are like thoughts. And, and so like, I, you so, know, so I, and, and that's a the... world that terrifies me, right? It's a world that terrifies me when corporations and governments have access to that because of the real chilling and interference with freedom of thought. And so this case, this case pushes that boundary for me. No, it does. But so this is maybe a good segue into sort of the thorny legal area uh, that this uh, puts before us, ethical, legal, constitutional even. And you do a very good job and a very nuanced job of, I think, raising the issues and framing the issues in your book. Not everything that comes from your body um, is, is inviolable under our criminal justice system. You can, for, you can, for example, uh, by compulsion, get fingerprints, you can get by compulsion blood samples, you can get, depending on the nature of the case, uh, other kinds of things from the body that might be able to be probative of your guilt. And you don't have a right against self-incrimination with respect to that. You, don't, you can't invoke the fifth against taking blood or against getting a fingerprint if the judge orders it, right? Um, but you do have an absolute inviolable Fifth Amendment right not to incriminate yourself by what? By your speech, the confession that was been, that's been coerced, or um, a comment being made about the fact that you didn't testify at your own criminal trial, that's a mistrial, and the prosecutor gets disciplined that very day. The problem now is, or the issue is, with this technology, some of this stuff you can get from things that you attach to someone's brain, is that more like the blood example, or is that more like the coerced confession example? Right. And you're the expert, so you tell us. Well, I mean, it's interesting because I think it depends on what you're inferring from the brain. There was uh, Jess Homsalu, who is a writer at MIT Tech Review, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, wrote, she was covering a conference where one of my colleagues spoke about how, um, a, how, how law enforcement had sought uh, data from a person's, like, implanted electrodes for epilepsy in a criminal case to see whether or not they had assaulted a person or were having an epileptic seizure. I reached out to her to try to understand what that case was and if she had any more details. And what she said was she thinks it was the person themselves, like the, uh, the person who was suffering from an epileptic seizure who actually sought to introduce and prove their innocence that they were having an epileptic seizure, that they weren't actually assaulting someone. Um, well, that kind of physical evidence, right, an automatic function that's happening in your body. You're suffering from an epileptic seizure. You're not intending to move your body in a particular way. That might be just physical evidence, not like your thoughts of incrimination against yourself. And maybe there's a good use of that. And I, when okay, I so look that may at, be more like the blood. That might be more like the blood. And so when I go through looking at the kind of spectrum of different kinds of information you could get from the brain, what I find is probably there are gaps in our existing law. The Fifth Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, the First Amendment 
probably does not actually protect people against the use or misuse of their brain data or AI being used in these different contexts, and we need to fill that in with what I propose, which is a right to cognitive liberty. I was just gonna ask you about that. Which don't I, I don't we already know. have that in the Constitution? Well, no. Um, we don't. We don't have any... Do we have a right to privacy anymore? Oh, yeah, let's not go there. Okay. But <laughs> at least not reproductive privacy, it seems. But that, that, you know, at least reserved left the possibility of other forms of self-determination and didn't deconstruct all of that. But the idea that there are gaps in our existing laws, I think, is important to recognize. Because as we introduce more and more technology into the criminal justice system... And we do so in ways without being thoughtful about what rights are we trampling on by doing so. The hope is to revolutionize the criminal justice system to make it less biased and make it more fair and make it more even-handed or to get at better approximations of the truth. And instead, what we oftentimes do is over-rely on science, fall prey to the seductive allure of neuroscience and AI, and then move to this piece, which I think is so critical from your book, which is we move toward dehumanization of people rather than humanization. And so there was one more story I wanted to pick up from your book, which I, I, I liked the way you described it quite a bit. You know, you were kind of maybe a geeky kid who wasn't hanging out with mobsters maybe. as a child. Maybe, maybe. Um, and you talk about both the kind of exhilarating but also the humanizing aspects of spending time with criminals as you go through turned witnesses who have done really bad things. But I want you to talk about that process because this is the part that I think we are most likely to lose if we over-rely on technology, which is the need to truly humanize people to be able to have an empathetic response within the criminal justice system and a truly more calibrated response. So yeah. I wonder so, if you could talk about that. Yeah, this was a revelation that I had over time. It's very peculiar, and then we want to get to your questions. Um, Ask all of them to her. Uh, <laughs> Definitely not. You know, prosecutors like physicians sometimes can forget that they're not just doing their job, that they're real human beings. They're victims, real human beings. And there are people who you try to hold accountable within the law inappropriately, but they're also human beings, even though they may have done things that require prosecution and them being held accountable. And one of the most fascinating areas of criminal law and, and maybe the most interesting chapter in the book and the most difficult chapter I wrote in the book is this idea of people who flip, right? And everyone uh, who's following legal issues and politics is wondering about Michael Cohen and whether Michael Cohen, three years ago, the former uh, personal lawyer of the President of the United States, the former President of the United States, would flip. And so there's been lots of conversation in connection with some of these big cases that get covered. Do you flip, do you not flip? And what causes someone to flip? Well, the other way of thinking about that is from the perspective of the prosecutor, you have this weird situation in which you charge a bunch of folks that are guilty of crimes in your belief, and you have to prove that, and you're prosecuting them, and you think of them as just you know, names on the other side of the, the V, the verses in the, in the caption, but you need some of them, at least one or more of them sometimes, to cooperate with you and to flip on their fellow defendants. And in the process of flipping them, um, you may not know, you have to debrief them for hours and hours and hours, sometimes for days on end, particularly if it's a, a, you know, a broad criminal enterprise like a, a mob enterprise. And this person, who to you was kind of like a you know, disembodied name in a caption, who you were trying to send to prison, now becomes your ally, sometimes becomes your friend. You're warned against that person becoming your friend. But you begin to learn a little bit more about 
which the law doesn't require when you're prosecuting them. It does require uh, largely when you're bringing them into your fold because you need to know everything about them. You learn about their childhood. You learn about their relationships. You learn about their motivations. And you become uh, close to them. And they are also you know, essentially the tool by which you get professional gratification because without them, arguably, you can't prevail in the case. You can't get the conviction in the case. And that's the moment at which you realize it's so odd. By happenstance, this one person decided to cooperate against the other mobsters. And this is, I mean, I, I have friends who are prosecutors who get Christmas cards and Father's Day cards from, from people who have been prosecuted by them but who then flipped. And there's something about that that I think maybe should be imported into the system generally. One other quick story that, that really struck me, you know, and that machines can't, I think, handle, and often human beings can't handle. So we, you know, not every human being is as empathetic and cares about these things as every other human being. Um, ordinarily, and if you have other experiences, I'd like to hear them, sometimes it's the case that at a general proceeding in a criminal matter, the judge will say in introduction, good morning, Mr. Prosecutor, Good morning, Ms. Defense Lawyer. Um, and I note the presence of the defendant, right? Which is weird, because everyone else gets humanized, everyone else gets a name, and the only reason you're there is to, in a process that not everyone finds fair, decide whether or not you're gonna take liberty away from the person who is denoted as the defendant, whose presence is simply mentioned for the purposes of the court reporter. Um, the chief judge at the time when I was in the United States Attorney, Judge Preska, um, in the minority practice, said, good morning, Mr. Prosecutor, good morning, Ms. Defense Lawyer, and good morning, Mr. Defendant. By name, it's a small thing. Um, and it's, you know, sometimes maybe it's useful when we think about the ways that machine-driven algorithms and AI might cause us to be less human. We should reflect a little bit more about how we've already done that to ourselves. Yeah. No, I mean, I agree. I think one thing that can be quite useful about both neurotech and AI and other technologies introduced into the criminal justice system is a, is a lens as to what we're doing and why we're doing it already. Um, two quick notes, and I just want to invite you all to uh, come up and ask questions. One is on the, you know, does it wreck or revolutionize? I think the idea that we would dehumanize people further to just bits and, you know, kind of bites is troubling, but I will just offer a flip. I have a chapter in my book that was probably the hardest chapter for me to write, which was trying to figure out what's the line between manipulation and persuasion. And I thought a lot about that as you were describing the flipping of the cooperative witness, including subtle things like every day one of the, um, I think it was detectives, going in uh, to somebody who hadn't flipped and leaving a really delicious sandwich <laughs> in front of him. And doing that yeah. week after week, yeah. uh, trying to kind of tap into the person's brain and emotional connection to them and humanizing them, but also trying to manipulate them. And as we look at technologies that can increasingly enable us with greater precision to manipulate other human beings, I think we need to worry about the extraction of false confessions, the flipping of people, the dehumanization of people even further in the criminal justice system. So there are ways it can be used for good. I think it all depends on how we actually implement it. But why don't we go to questions? Thank you for coming up. Hi, thanks so much for this. 
Um, my name is Lisa Armstrong. I'm a professor at the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism, mm -hmm. and I'm also a journalist and I cover incarceration. Mm -hmm. And I have a question about whether AI is being used to look at mitigating factors. Mm -hmm. So I report mainly on juvenile life without parole, where judges have been using mitigating factors that are supposed to be used to, against sentencing a juvenile to life to instead say, this person is so broken by their experience that we should sentence them to life. So yeah. I'm just wondering if, um, yeah, if AI is being used to look at those mitigating factors, and if not, if you think it's a good idea to have that done, and if that would lead to a more fair outcome. I, I will say this, which is I think that the way that we treat juveniles is utterly broken. Um, and, uh, and, I, and one thing that has been positive from neuroscience um, has been the use of the neuroscience of the developing brain to recognize that uh, a couple of things. One, obviously the brain continues to develop and for much later than most people would have previously expected, right? So we have this arbitrary cutoff of 18 years of age, it goes longer, but how that affects decision-making, peer pressure, and also the fact that that person is not going to be the same person. You put them in jail for 35 years, they're gonna be a totally different human being by the time you've done that. So that's a positive use, I think. AI looking at sentencing factors, that's part of how it's been used in sentencing, which is to try to recognize that there should, you know, there, there shouldn't be life without the possibility of parole for, you know, non-homicidal cases. There shouldn't be executions of juveniles. But systematizing the factors that are being taken into place, this is where I think AI can be incredibly useful, right? So as I was describing earlier, part of I think the problem with the criminal justice system, there are many, but one of the major problems is just the uneven justice across the country with different cases, with whether it's juveniles or adults. And the more you can have data trained on the many factors that go into decision-making, the more that data could be used for human decision-makers as they're making more empathetic decisions. Maybe that data could help to start to understand what the greater variability is and how we might actually level things out some. Hi, thank you so much for this conversation. My name is Albert Fox Khan. I'm the executive director of the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project. I'm a fellow at Yale Law School and Kennedy School. And I, I come from a slightly different perspective because I actively campaigned to outlaw police use of AI. I wanted to ask specifically about the impact of these technologies on neurodivergent individuals. Yeah. Because one of the concerns I had was what happens when you have a system that potentially is shown to be accurate in a large number of cases, but then is systematically yeah. discriminating against individuals who are neurotypical or you know, fall outside the parameters of what the model has been trained to look for? I think it's a great question. I'm going to start with one example, which is the example Preet was giving about uh, the defendants who we describe as the defendant, right, rather than humanizing it. One of the things I do in my criminal law class is I have a bunch of clips of media describing, and this is before we get to AI, right, of media describing a criminal defendant's affect at the table. And almost all of them say things like, he was remorseless, he showed no reaction. He, and, and all of that is us projecting a whole bunch of information, but there's also a lot of neurodivergence, a lot of people who are suffering from mental illness who are sitting at that table or a lot of people who've been drugged 
and forcibly made competent to stand trial that flattens their affect, or they're taking you know, benzodiazepines to remain calm enough to be present in the criminal justice system, and then we're making judgments about their affect and trying to do theory of mind of those individuals. So but that's not happening in court. No, no, but it, yeah. but, but it is happening like, in court because you, the have lawyer jurors, be, yeah. you have jurors who are looking at the you know, individual. So I think well before we get to AI, we are already being discriminatory against neurodivergence within the criminal courtroom and using that as a basis of flawed decision-making based on flawed theories of mind of others. Um, and then you know, we could unpack the ways in which the technologies regularly discriminate and make false assumptions about people who are neurodivergent as well. But I, I just offer that anecdote to say, we're doing that all the time within the criminal justice system. We could make it worse with AI, um, but it's a problem that we have to solve quite regardless of whether or not you introduce AI into the criminal justice system or not. Thanks. Hi. Hi. Sorry. Hi, and thank you again for um, having this conversation. My name is Jamiria Hurley, and I'm a lawyer at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, um, an organization that focuses primarily on racial justice issues, um, specifically for black people and other people of color. Um, a question that I have is uh, similar to one that was asked a few minutes ago. Uh, you mentioned that, um, how can I describe it? For a system like the criminal justice system, which is inherently um, discriminatory towards people of color. I guess my fear is, is that instituting or continuing to institute AI into decision-making would continue to harm people of color, black people specifically, in a way that we might not be able to... Um, Detect, maybe, as you yeah, said. Yeah, and like rectify to recover from, so my question is, I know you, men, you mentioned um, that AI can be used to uh, create systems that would, help to, that would help to create and expand the mitigating circumstances. Um, and my question to that is, who would be in charge of determining those mm -hmm. mitigating factors? Because we already have a system that, for instance, you have sentencing guidelines that are created by people that are still discriminatory towards people of color. So my question is, who would be in charge of yeah. creating those systems? And then um, I guess, do you see that further impacting people yeah. of color? So, so I'll say a couple of things and I'm interested in kind of the, I know you feel very strongly about the kind of importance of individualized sentencing and so how that might combat it. But, but one is, not all AI has to be black box AI. One of my colleagues at Duke, Cynthia Rudin, has been writing about transparent AI systems and how they actually are you know, just as effective in predicting outcomes as black box systems. And that for high stakes decision making, like the criminal justice system, we ought to have transparent models. We ought to demand those kind of transparent models. That would both enable you to see what's being used for the decision making and more easily audit the system. So, it's harder to audit humans for bias, although there have been proposals about using neurotech and AI to do so. It may be easier to audit AI systems for that kind of bias and to continue to kind of refine them. Do I think that's the solution? No, there's been, you know, the ProPublica did a, you know, kind of deep dive into um, the compass system that was being used and, you know, kind of came to the conclusion from their perspective that it was 
uh, it, it was leading to much more biased recommendations and that it was happening behind a black box and that we were over-relying on it. But, you know, I think, I think the jury is still out on AI as to whether or not it is a tool that could be used whether as an open box system or as an inform, informing a human decision maker. Yeah, I, I don't have a lot to add on that, except that I think the point you make is an important one, that if people of good faith who are open-minded and have as their goal, and their stated goal, the elimination of bias, they're going to be open to and um, dedicated to evaluating round after round after round and making alterations in what the programming is, or the algorithms are, which, you, which it's hard to do with human judges. Yeah. So it maybe it holds more promise for that reason. I think we have time for one more question. Thank you for your question. Yeah. Hi. Um, we, oh, thank you for this conversation, by the way. Um, we already use technology and science to, as evidence, right? Whether it's fingerprints, as you said, blood, um, handwriting analysis, lie detector tests, these are all already used, but as we all know, there are, challenge, there are problems with some of these, all of these, every test, even DNA, has an error rate. Um, what are the standards that we use, or what are the processes that we use to mitigate some of these issues, and are any of those things that we can also use with other technology like AI? I think when it comes to AI, one of the challenges is, um, for some of the ways it's being used, it's different than other scientific techniques, right? We've been using it as evidence as opposed to decision-making. And I think the, the complicated uh, part of AI, as data, as evidence, we have tools for trying to um, test out the reliability. Uh, and those are tests that we can apply in kind of scientific processes of evaluation and replication and studying, especially if it's open box AI rather than closed box AI. The, the difference is that we haven't used those scientific tools before to replace human decision-making. We've used it to augment or to supplement or to be evidence that we sort and parse between. And AI as a decision-making tool, as, a, uh, as replacing human cognition and humans in the loop and, and the decisions that we're making, I think is a whole new category. And so our kind of traditional standards of scientific admissibility may not apply. It requires us to fundamentally re-examine what is the role of humans in the system of justice? What is it that we're trying to achieve and how much of that can be achieved through automatic processes and how much of it requires human decision makers? We have about a minute left. Can I ask the audience a question? Yeah. Or two questions since we're democratic? So, so after, this, after this conversation, thinking about some of these issues, uh, how many of you think that AI and neurotech will revolutionize criminal justice? And how many of you think it will wreck criminal justice? And how many of you think something in between? Your guys are right. <laughs> um, thank, we should, and, yeah, so thank yeah. you. We, we will both be in the bookstore uh, immediately following. So if you want to come by and just chat with us or have a book signed, feel free to come by and hang out with us there. We'll be there for at least the next half hour, and we look forward to continuing the conversation with you. Thank Austin. you for joining us.